1: clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Welcome back to ARK's FYI podcast. Last week, we talked to author Charles Graber about his great book, Immunotherapy and the Race to Cure Cancer. This week, we're following up that episode with one of the principal characters in the book, Dr. Daniel Chen. Dr. Chen spent over 12 years at Genentech and is one of the principal people behind the current wave of interest and treatments available for cancer immunotherapy. During his time at Genentech, he contributed to over 20 cancer immunotherapy treatments and helped take to market one of their flagship PD-L1 drugs that is now approved to treat various forms of lung cancer. Since we get pretty deep into the weeds of medical jargon, I thought it'd be good just to have a quick overview of what you're about to hear. The main topic is immunotherapy as a mechanism for treating cancer. Immunotherapy is distinguished from other forms such as radiation and chemotherapy by not killing the cancer cells directly, but reprogramming our human immune system to attack the cancer cells. You will hear words like PD-1 and pdl one Every time you hear that, just think of them as essential molecules that regulate the pathway that prevent our bodies from attacking cancer cells. Dr. Chen's primary insight was that by blocking the pdl one pathway, it allows our own immune system to attack cancer cells, which led to the breakthrough for Genentech's drug, which is now treating various forms of lung cancer. It's really hard to overstate how much progress and how much hope there is for immunotherapy as a pathway to treat cancer. Prior to its discovery or mainstream commercialization in 2011, our efficacy against, for example, late stage melanoma was around 5%. 5% of people survived when they were diagnosed with late stage melanoma. With the new wave of PD 1 and PD L1 drugs, we're now able to treat cancers that were previously untreatable with efficacy rates of close to 50%. This is one of the largest breakthroughs we've had in cancer research. As part of this podcast, I'm joined by our genomic analyst, Manisha Sami, as well as our robotics and space analyst, Sam Khoris. This is a great episode with a person who's been in the front lines of cancer research, and we hope you enjoy it. Okay, so last week we talked about the book that Charles Graber wrote on immunotherapy and how it's really changing cancer care and really providing cures in some cases for cancer, something we haven't really had hopes for for a long time. And Dr. Chan, you've been working in the field pretty much most of your career focused on this. Maybe you can just give us an overview of how this approach went from something that was almost considered uh, disreputable uh, to the most mainstream and credible source uh, pathway for for treating cancer.
3: Well, so There's no doubt that we're at a very special moment in the history of science and medicine. I think for many of us working in this field, we started at a time when we didn't have effective immunotherapies. And for myself, I think back to uh, the early 90s when people didn't have a good sense of whether the human immune system would really have an important impact on human cancer. And I'll remember, I was a graduate student at USC at the time, and I read this paper that was a a Journal Club article. It was a paper in Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. It came out of Richard Mulligan's lab at the Whitehead Institute. And it was on a immunotherapy approach in mice. And it's funny to look back on. It was important to me at the time because it was really my entry to thinking about the immune system and how it could combat cancer. But if you look at the many of the authors on that paper, the first author was Glenn Dranoff. The second author was Elizabeth Jaffe. On that paper is also High Levitsky, Drew Pardall and of course, Richard Mulligan, as well as many other people on that effort. And... These are many of the leading scientists in the field today. but They were all probably postdocs at that time. But I think of that as a seminal moment. And obviously, there were many in the field that really helped spur a generation of immunologists that were working in immunotherapy.
0: In between that, what was the key change that allowed for immunology to actually take off?
3: Well, even though I like to think of that 1993 paper, for most of us working in the field from 1993 until about 2010, it was actually a very difficult time. I think we believe in the reasons why the human immune system would be such a powerful way to treat cancer. Immunology is complex. The immune system is complex. But that's part of the beauty of why it's such a great way to treat cancer, because cancer you think about cancer, cancer is a highly evolved genetic disease, right? You have normal cells in your body, they mutate, and then they create this incredibly heterogeneous mass of mutated cells. Most of the therapies that we use to fight it, chemotherapy, but even targeted therapies that go after single mutations, that might be driver mutations. You imagine those can be effective therapies, but it's hard for those static therapy to kill all of the cancer cells. And so what happens is you, even in the best cases, you reduce the amount of cancer a patient may have, but then the remaining cancer cells grow back. The beauty of the human immune system is the human immune system is complex. It's dynamic. It can grow and, and look for different things that are wrong about those cancer cells and eliminate them. And, and so the immune system can essentially evolve with the cancer. And that's part of what makes it so special as a therapy. It's as dynamic as the disease itself, but it took us a while to figure that out. And you know, from 1993 to 2010, that's a lot of time in the scientist's career where...
0: What was the biggest obstacle? Was it just we didn't have the technologies in place or we didn't know the biology in place?
3: So thinking about the obstacles, we knew a lot about how the human immune system worked, And a lot of the approaches that were being taken in the 90s and 2000s, they, they were good approaches, but there was one piece of biology missing. And I often refer to PDL one and PD one as the missing link. And the reason I say that is when you can understand a lot of immunology, you can take good approaches to treatment. But PDL one, PD one as a as a biologic node sits at the end of what we call the cancer immunity cycle. So that means to get effective cancer immunotherapy, you need a whole host of biologic steps to have occurred properly. But if you don't have the last step taken care of, you don't get activity.
0: You have a ton of pdl ones and PD-1 inhibitors. At, at this point, it seems like their Me Too treatments do you not feel like that's the case. Like, are there actual differences between um, how they work? pharmaconetically or or is it the same?
3: Yeah, so PDL1, PD1 as you know, is a ligand receptor interaction. It's really important in cancer immunology. And you essentially want to remove that inhibitory step if you're trying to induce an immune response against cancer. I think the most important thing is that you effectively block that interaction, PD-L1 binding to PD-1. There are different ways to do it. Whether you create an antibody that blocks PD-L1 or an antibody that blocks PD-1, they largely function the same. There are some subtle differences, but the differences are pretty subtle. As long as you have a good inhibitor of that interaction, you you generally get the same phenomenon, which is induction of a, in, in fact, induction is not even the right term. You essentially relieve the suppression of your immune response against cancer. And that's important to get effective cancer immunotherapy.
1: And so you brought Genentech's PDL one drug from preclinical stage to market. And I think, you know, a lot of our listeners, people listening, don't even understand the steps and how long that takes. So I think it'd be interesting to hear from you kind of what, how long did that process take and what were each stage going from preclinical to post-market?
3: Yeah, so I was um, very fortunate to be in a position at, at Genentech at the time. And of course, I didn't take it there all the way through myself. I was fortunate to be part of a large group of scientists and physicians to make that happen. But it is a very long path, generally, between an idea, a scientific concept, the generation of a therapeutic, to really bring it into human testing, and all the way through to approval. That process can often take 15 years. And for Genentech here in the field of cancer immunotherapy, it was actually even longer than that. And obviously the different groups that have brought forward PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors all have their own story. For genetics, it was a particularly interesting one because we originally identified pd one as a cancer target out of a, a human cancer screen that we did back in 2000. But it took many years after that to understand the real biology of this pathway. So you can imagine, all of the work that happened between 2000 and let's say about 2006 that really helped us understand the role of PD-L1, PD-1. And that included incredible work done by Tasuku Honjo, who originally identified the molecule, Jim Allison in his lab that really focused on the early checkpoint inhibitor work, and then three really critical people in the field, Gordon Freeman, Arlene Sharp, and Li Ping Chen, who really helped everybody understand what that interaction between PDL one and PD-1 did. That really helped us at Genentech then think about, okay, how are we gonna create a therapeutic? What are we gonna apply it to? And ultimately we took it forward to human clinical trials in 2011. And that's where we began that journey from going and testing it first in humans, all the way through to approvals, uh, full approval in a number of different indications in 2016.
2: Maybe we can just cover some of the results from this drug. Um, this is kind of the second generation of immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, CTLA-4, anti-CTLA-4 came out in 2011. Uh, these came out around 2014. What were kind of the standard of care and survival rates before the, dis- uh, the release of these drugs? And uh, what did it change after they were released?
3: Well, so one of the really interesting things about the interaction between the immune system and cancer is that the immune system, if you think about it, is really good at finding things that look different than yourself and that's its job right it needs to figure out if there is a bacteria or a virus or a parasite and eliminate it and those same processes allow the immune system to also prevail for mutated cells like cancer cells that look different than normal and you can imagine because they start as normal cells cells if if you only have a single mutation that doesn't look very different than a normal cell but as that cancer cell accumulates mutations it starts to look more and more foreign and one of the interesting interplays in therapeutics in cancer is that most traditional therapies work worse in the types of cancers that have are highly mutated those highly mutated cancer types tend to be associated with a carcinogen exposure. So you think about smoking as uh, obviously as a big one, but that's not the only one. UV radiation is another big one. Both of these are highly carcinogenic environmental exposures, and they tend to lead to cancers that are highly mutated. So think about lung cancer and melanoma and bladder cancer as we would think about it later. These are highly mutated cancers, and traditional therapies, like chemotherapy, work really poorly in these diseases. And at the same time, as we started to understand cancer immunotherapy, these were the exact diseases where cancer immunotherapy seemed to work best. And it's probably because the biology lines up really well.
2: They look most different to ourselves.
3: They look really different to our, our bodies and our immune systems.
2: And how were the efficacy rates uh, changed when these were released?
3: Well, so at the time, we had very few drugs that had appreciable single-agent responses in these diseases, right? So lung cancer was generally managed by chemotherapy. Very little else worked in the majority of lung cancer. Melanoma, we had almost nothing. We knew that immunotherapy could work, and so drugs like IL-2 and interferon were used at the time in melanoma but they weren't very effective and they were incredibly toxic. And similarly, bladder cancer, people would try things like chemotherapy, but they were not great approaches for the treatment for these patients. So we didn't have a lot in these diseases. And one of the striking things about PD-1 and pdl one inhibitors in early phase clinical trial, you know, usually what you do is you design an initial safety trial you want to understand if your drug is safe, what dose you can dose it at, and what the PK or exposure in humans is of your drug. And that's the goal of most phase one studies. But what was so striking about these drugs, including a ab, a PD-L1 inhibitor that I helped develop at, at Genentech, was the moment we got up to doses where there was reasonable exposure. So we saw this first for a tezolizumab at one milligram per kilogram. Literally, we treated three patients. One of them was a lung patient. In the first scan we got back, the tumors were shaking. And you can imagine just how powerful a moment that is for everybody working in this field when you see something like that. And I will say that, and, and I think we talk about it in the, in the breakthrough by Charles Graver that at the very next dose level, we treated three more patients, two of them responded. And the moment it happened, the physicians that were taking care of these patients who are used to running phase one trials where, you know, it's again, it's just a safety and, and PK study. They're calling us up going, you won't believe this this patient that was so sick that couldn't get out of bed literally a week ago, we started treatment and he's now getting up and going to the gym. And the words that I remember from, from one of the physicians, this was Peter Bosberg down in Los Angeles. He actually wrote to me and he said, the, the patient has been recalled to life. <laughs> and you can imagine that, You know, there my my voice started cracking, and and there weren't many dry eyes. And that's as scientists and as physicians working in the field of cancer therapy, that's you know that's your dream to make that kind of a difference.
0: So, immunotherapy right now is just it's it's huge right now. Everyone's talking about it. You have CAR T, you have tilt therapies. And TCR therapies, I would just love to hear your thoughts on where is immunotherapy going in general?
3: It's really important, right? Because we've had the breakthrough of pd one PDL one That was a huge moment in sort of opening the door to immunotherapy as an approach. And I'm a strong believer that that door is likely open forever, meaning as we move forward with better and better therapies in the field of oncology. Mm-hmm. immunotherapy will always play an important role, right? So we, we think of the pillars of, of cancer therapy, surgery, radiation therapy, chemotherapy, targeted therapy. Immunotherapy is still the new kid on the block in that grouping. Um, but I think it belongs as a therapeutic pillar and it's likely to be part of any regimen going forward in the future. Now, you bring up a really good point as to what's next. Right. And the way I think of what's next is we've opened the door. And now, where do we go from here? And I like to think of a number of really important driving factors that will likely be important in the future of cancer therapy, and in particular immunotherapy. And you mentioned one of them, right, which is CAR T cells. CAR T cells in and of itself is an amazing engineering feat. And it shows you what we're capable of in terms of creating novel therapeutics.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But it's not just CAR T cells. Obviously it's checkpoint inhibitors. We just mm-hmm. talked about that breakthrough with pd one and PD-1. But we sit at the intersection of other major breakthroughs as well. And one of the ones I like to point to is the Human Genome Project, which was completed about 15 years ago now right? Yeah. So we're sitting here. We know what all the genes are. We essentially know what all the proteins are. We understand how the immune system works better than we ever have. We have therapeutic approaches that are starting to evolve. It's not just small molecules or antibodies anymore. Now we can engineer cells as therapeutics. We can engineer proteins to create structures in a way that we can create therapeutics that are different than the traditional monoclonal antibody that either blocks a target or, or activates a target. We have more data than ever. So with AI and machine learning coming online, we have the ability to sort through massive amounts of information and so the way i think of the future is it's the at the intersection of data data that's coming in from our ability to do high frequent profiling of human cancer either before treatment and after treatment our understanding of biology
0: mm-hmm.
3: and new technology car t-cells and antibody engineering and other types of engineered approaches and so i think it will be at the intersection of those three things where we'll really see the next generation of therapeutics
0: where do you think the biggest change needs to be made right now from a technological point of view to actually get us to what we want to see
3: Well, we still need advances in all three of those areas. Just because we're at the intersection doesn't mean we're at the finish line yet. Mm -hmm. And if you take each of those, you think about big data coming in from all the different high-throughput profiling approaches. We don't have all the right tools to connect that profiling with the massive amount of clinical data that's being generated. So... It's a nice idea to have machine learning as a big part of how we're going to advance our understanding of biology and develop better therapies. But without all the infrastructure links, you can't even apply the types of advanced machine learning that are available today.
0: Is that just basic biology, just understanding kind of how biology works? Is that kind of what we need to improve upon?
3: Well, so in many ways, when I say biology versus big data, you know, biology is traditionally what we can understand, right? As scientists, and we learn about how to do this very early in our training. And it's interesting because as humans, biologists are reductionists. That's actually not limited to biology. It's true in any field of science. We learn to reduce the problem to something as simple as possible. You isolate all the variables so you can understand something very precisely. And that's a good way to think about science. But machine learning and AI is like the complete opposite, right? Because machines are, are best when you feed them massive complex data sets. And machines can make sense of complex data in a way that the human brain has trouble doing. So I think of that intersection in terms of understanding biology, and that's a reductionist approach isolating things like pdl1 pd1 is important in a very specific part of the cancer immunity cycle but combining that with big data and machine learning which is let's take massive amounts of data and understand that when you have in a given patient all of the different factors that presents a particular biology and a particular opportunity for treatment. And you can imagine in the future that might help help us identify not only new targets to go after with our drugs, but it might tell us the right combination of drugs to be giving.
1: And then a current debate going on as well as, you know, the pd one pdl one has been for non-solid tumors. What are you seeing and kind of what's your take on whether CAR-T could treat solid tumor indications going forward?
3: Yeah, so that's an interesting one, right? Because pd one pdl PD-L1 is, works primarily so far in solid tumors. That doesn't mean it's not important in hematologic malignancies. But we haven't quite figured out what, what it's going to take to make pdl one PD-1 important in the majority of hematologic malignancies. And I think the reason why it hasn't broken through yet in hematologic malignancies is that most hematologic malignancies are malignancies of your immune system your immune system tends to have a lot of other factors protecting it from having the immune system destroy itself. And so that may be part of why just of trying to apply simple inhibitors to PD-1 and pdl one haven't worked quite as well as we had hoped in hematologic malignancies. Similarly, if you look at things like CAR T-cells and T-cell engaging by specifics, so far they've worked best in heme malignancies. And that's a place where we can engineer solutions and drive killing of those hematologic malignancies really well. But the problem is, I think, from applying it to to solid tumors, is that there's still a complex network of immunologic controls that leave these early approaches to what we call synthetic immunity, CAR T-cells and T-cell engagers, from effectively getting into the tumor microenvironment in a solid tumor and that's an important challenge that needs to be understood and then our therapeutics need to be optimized for that
2: just getting Back to the data, the intersection of data and kind of where we are with cancer care for a moment. It sounds like we need some kind of link, or perhaps new software, or cloud technology, so that both groups can talk to each other and, and share results with each other. We've had we've had some companies, maybe Foundation Medicine and others, kind of enter that field. What what is the tool that you need to be able to succeed and kind of cross this barrier, if you will?
3: Well, I'm, I'm glad you're um, asking this question because again, this is something that I. I believe is fundamental to our ability to develop next generation therapeutics. If you think about the field of cancer immunotherapy, one of the wonderful things about the early part of this field is there have been a lot of people involved, a lot of scientists, a lot of drug developers, a lot of clinicians, and they're, they've worked together pretty well to bring this forward. And I think it's driven by the excitement of the field, the interest in the biology, and the very clear impact it has on patients. So the field has actually evolved with a lot of strong collaboration. That being said, I think to take it to the next level, there still needs to be much more collaboration. And I'll mention something that has been, to me, an interesting observation in the field, which is that the breakthrough in cancer immunotherapy has largely been driven by two disparate approaches. One's an endogenous immune approach and one is a synthetic immune approach. And we think of those generally as checkpoint inhibitors like pd one pdl one inhibitors, and on the other side, CAR T cells as the synthetic immune approach. And even though both of these are essentially immunotherapy and sometimes we see them both presented at the same meeting there hasn't been as much dialogue as I would like to see between the people that work on CAR T cells and the people that work on things like PD1 and PDL1. But I think that time is coming. And I think that collaboration has to be inten- should be intentional. So people have to want to collaborate. There have to be opportunities. So people have to get in the same room and have a dialogue. But then the next step, the trickier step. Are the tools that help us bridge data? And we can't even bridge simple data effectively yet. Meaning, even with PDL1 and PD1 studies, you know, these exist in individual study databases. And we don't have all the right tools yet to have large studies talk to each other. So we need to be able to string through, string together thousands of studies all with deep data sets and allow them to talk to each other. And we need investigators and scientists that want to collaborate. And when we do that, I think we'll have taken a big step forward in shaping the the future of this field.
0: So uh, you you talked about convergence quite a bit. Um, So one of the things I'm thinking about right now is um, microbiome uh, is becoming a larger conversation. There's some sort of connection it seems like with PDL1 inhibitors and PDL1 and whether patients respond to it and their microbiome. Do you have a general what are your thoughts on that on the face?
3: I was an early believer in the biology of the microbiome. I think it's incredibly fascinating not only for scientists, but for lay people, to think about how your health can literally be shaped by the bacteria that live in your gut. That being said, it's an incredibly complicated area and field. Um, you think the human immune system is complicated. Try studying you know, the interplay of different bacteria in your gut. And so to me, That is a field that is still very, very early in its infancy. And I think we're going to see what has commonly been described as the boom-bust cycle of innovation in the field of the microbiome. You think about cancer immunotherapy, that boom-bust cycle started, you know, somewhere between 20, 30 years ago, or you could also call it over a hundred years ago with coli. Right, and it's had a lot of ups and downs. As breakthroughs come up, as new advancements come up, people get excited, but then we don't understand it well enough to create effective therapeutics, and so people go work on something else. And that's the history of any any innovation, right? It's true for gene therapy also. Mm -hmm. I think the microbiome is still so early in its field that we're going to still see some big ups and downs in terms of the boom-bust innovation
0: are you a believer of the area
3: i believe in the biology um i'm not ready to say that we have a near-term powerful therapeutic coming but i'm open to being proven wrong
1: that's a good good mindset to have and i think an interesting point you brought up and really ties it all together is you know just the number of scientists and students interested in the area, what type of uptick have you seen just in the number of people studying, reaching out to you, getting PhDs uh, in the immunotherapy space? Because this really can be an accelerant to future innovation.
3: I think that's absolutely true. And it's one of the nice things about having things work. When things work, when you make a difference, people start to come into the field. So the effort grows dramatically and we all benefit from that because our community, our scientific community really expands. And we've seen that at all levels. You know, a nice example I have in my mind is I think about SITSI, the Society for Immunotherapy of Cancer, which I've been involved closely for the last about 10 years or so. But SITSI as an organization has been around much longer than that. So in its infancy, It was essentially a group of people that sat around and liked to hang out together and talk science. Those meetings were very small, and they made a difference, but it was a very small field. You could count on, probably on your hands or at least a few hands, how many people were involved in the early days. Since 2010, the participants at CITSI, let's say the annual meeting, essentially has doubled every year. And it continues to grow dramatically. So now if you go to a SITSI meeting, it's not you and, you know, your 20 best friends in the field, it's you and probably 4,000 or more people in the room. There's a... And that's just a microcosm of what's happened in the field. The number of people that have come in and done their PhDs in immunology, the number of people that go into medicine and go in to work in cancer immunotherapy it's been an amazing explosion to watch. And I think that not only will we see that horizon continue to grow, you'll see it start to touch the other related fields, right? So not only do we understand immunology better and cancer immunotherapy better, so a lot of the approaches and ideas coming out of this field are gonna affect things like the future of of rheumatology, the study of autoimmune disease, the study probably of uh, antimicrobial and infectious disease efforts. So I think all of them will grow together. It's a, um, you know, you think about a rising tide raising all ships, but we've had a pretty nice surge in that time.
2: The uh, conference attendee numbers uh, remind me exactly of what's happening with deep learning. The corresponding conference that we have is called, was called NIPS, is now called NeuroRIPS, or however you say that. And it used to be just a couple hundred guys in a room, boring stats professors, and now it takes up the entire uh, Long Beach Convention Center. And uh, this, the tickets get sold out in the first day, I think.
3: Well, and I think a lot of these fields, as, as you see the, the types of disruption that we see in science, To me, I think of as coming from not just the advancement of science, but it's really the advancement of science and technology. And you're seeing that go across fields in a way that you didn't see 20 years ago. And you're seeing the advancement in technology, as we should, in information, in the ability to engineer all sorts of different molecules or machines and the advancement of science around that.
2: Dr. Chen, maybe um, you can talk about uh, your recent career progression. You worked in Genentech for a long time, but now you're heading up research at a a startup called uh, IGM.
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say too much about that, but what I will say is I've appreciated what feels like a fortunate set of bounces that have been my career. I started always being interested in science, And that interest in science grew to include both medicine and science. So I did my MD/PhD, went on to study oncology, and made a you know a big shift back in the early 2000s from being a straight academic at Stanford to to entering industry. I wouldn't say I was an early pioneer of those types of transitions, but I would say I was in still an early-ish part of of that movement of very strong scientists going into industry and being able to see the kind of differences that you can make in the field of biology, in the field of science, the field of cancer at a company versus at an academic institution. And I think they're just different. In uh, academia, you have an opportunity to really drive things very deeply, but very narrowly in industry, you have much broader reach, you have much, a much broader set of resources available for you to, you know, influence science and influence therapeutics. And so that was what I really appreciated about my move from Stanford to Genentech and Roche. And I absolutely loved my time at Genentech and Roche. I think that it is a wonderful company. And it has the it has a great vision in terms of how a company can influence both science and therapeutics. And as you know, I've recently taken a move to, to try something a little different. I went from what is a giant company in Genentech and Roche that has very broad reach scientifically and therapeutically to try something very different, which is a small biotech company, and so that's where I am now. I mean, we work on a platform technology, and I look forward to seeing where that goes next.
2: Maybe we can backtrace uh, just a little bit to checkpoint inhibitors. I The book was mostly about checkpoint inhibitors, the breakthrough, and you know we have uh, th- those two that that are very well known. Is there a pipeline of them, that unique versions of them, not just variants of the existing ones coming out? Is, uh, I mean, should people be more excited about checkpoint inhibitors going forward or kind of the CAR-T branch?
3: Yeah, so I think both are really important. And it's one of the things that that I've really tried to push for in the community. And, you know, I mentioned to you trying to increase dialogue between really what are two approaches, endogenous immune approaches and synthetic immune approaches. And they're both important. The endogenous immune uh, approach has that benefit, of being that dynamic part of your immune system so that you can have things like antigen spread and the generation of memory immune responses. Those are part of the things that make it really powerful. But one of the hard things with endogenous immunity is what do you do when cancer cells themselves lose some of the machinery that allows the immune system to see that those cells are foreign. So we often talk about things like loss of of MHC class 1 as an example. That makes those cancer cells suddenly invisible to the endogenous immune response. The synthetic immune response, CAR T-cells and T-cell engagers, take a different approach, right? So you're able to engineer a therapeutic that can recognize a cancer cell based on the expression of some protein that's not related to MHC class 1. And so it gets around this problem of MHC class one loss. Well, as it turns out, synthetic immune approaches and endogenous immune approaches can talk to each other because they're both part of the immune system. And that's where I think we're gonna see the most synergy in the future of cancer immunotherapy is the ability to take two different approaches, an endogenous immune approach and a synthetic immune approach and have them work together to drive the next therapeutic generation.
1: And are you seeing a lot, I mean, this is obviously global, and China's been pushing pretty heavily in the uh, bio and genomic space. Are you seeing a lot of advancement coming from China as well? Or where, where are you seeing geographically a lot of the advancements being made?
3: Yeah, so that, it's interesting, right? The, um, obviously, the field of immunology itself, of which all of this is founded, has its home in many different places. Um, great breakthroughs have happened across the globe. And for checkpoint inhibitors, a lot of it did happen within the U- U.S. And so I think the scientific community within the U.S. had a large role to play in the emergence of this field. That doesn't mean the future is all going to come from the U.S. And you bring up an interesting one in China, particularly around CAR T cells. So I think the Chinese scientific community still has a long way to go in terms of building its infrastructure, but it has been able to leverage one very interesting part of their system, which is their ability to accelerate a complex technology like cellular therapy and get it into human patients. And that has allowed them, I think, to really accelerate around cellular therapy and CAR T cells in particular.
0: So, you mentioned China and China being an area where you're using CAR T actually moving forward, and the, some of the research that we've been doing. Do you think it's more of like the manufacturing side of things, or is it the what what do you see happening in China right now with car key that would put China ahead of the U.S.?
3: Well, I think that obviously one part is the effort that's going behind it. You see a, a huge effort within China to develop this new technology. But I think there's another impo- really, really important component, and it probably lives on the regulatory side. What are the regulatory policies that govern how new technology is developed and how new technology enters into human testing. And, you know, I can't sit here and tell you what the right approach is, because I think that there is important pieces of ethics, of patient safety, of, uh, and of how technology comes forward. And so somewhere in there is probably the right balance. I believe that you know China believes strongly in this field and its ability to try to innovate in this field, and and so has certain policies in place that have allowed this field to evolve very quickly. There,
2: what's one thing they can do uh, that you're a fan of, but that we can't do in the U.S.?
3: Well, I won't. I'm not going to say fan because <laughs> that would say that I know what the right approach is. But I think that. There are mechanisms in, in place within China that allow complex cellular therapies to get into patients much faster than we see outside of China.
0: Which makes sense because of the number of diagnoses of cancer patients in China, right? I, I would assume that's part of the reason.
3: Well, you know, again, I don't want to go and speculate on this because I just, I'm not an expert in this field but you know china has an interesting uh, role to play in technology development as a country that has very strong government a very strong ability for its government to drive the priorities within its its country and you see that in a number of different areas one of those areas is healthcare within healthcare it seems like one of those areas is cellular
2: therapy and CAR T cell therapy. Dr. Chen, CRISPR has also entered the public's dialogue in a big way. Is that going to intersect and help us push forward kind of the realm of immunotherapy or maybe another approach to cancer?
3: So I think CRISPR is an incredible breakthrough as a research tool. (laughs) And there are things that we can do with CRISPR today that allow us to do experiments and accelerate all sorts of different areas of research that is going to advance our understanding of science and therapeutics. What I'm not ready to say yet is what its role specifically is going to be in therapeutics, in human therapeutics, and whether it's really CRISPR or the son of CRISPR or the daughter of CRISPR or the grandchild of CRISPR that will make a difference. I do think that this approach ultimately will be important in, in direct therapeutics.
0: What are your worries of CRISPR therapeutics right now? What could go wrong?
3: One thing is we don't really know its ultimate long-term effect on different cell populations. Mm-hmm. Right? As you make these changes in human cells. In humans, I I think one of the one of the things that's out there is do you do you also have the potential to generate malignant cells? Do you have the ability to generate a downstream effect, whether it's malignant cells or something else that ultimately has an untoward effect on human health? I, I can't say with with any expertise whether the technology really has the right profile yet for human therapy. What is its true fidelity? What is its true accuracy? And what are the long term effects?
0: Is it the lack of control that scares most of the scientific community? I uh, just not knowing what's possible. Like, do you think that's part of the reason? Is that part of your reason for, or your rationale for, not trusting CRISPR?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Again, it's not, I wouldn't say it's my area of expertise. And, and so I'm, I'm following this more as a scientific bystander. I do think fidelity is important. You know, I saw the early part of the gene therapy field. And as with any new technology, as you enter into humans, there's a lot that we don't fully understand yet. And when you're manipulating human cells and you're manipulating the DNA of those human cells, we all need to be very clear on what we understand and don't understand. And if you're talking about treating, you know, a patient who's a refractory to standard therapy and has a short projected lifetime, like many cancer patients, you know, that's maybe not a bad place to start your human studies. That equation of what's appropriate changes very rapidly when you get outside of diseases like terminal cancer.
0: I guess my next question is just, we've seen so many, just just in terms of the news media, what we've been seeing, what CRISPR has been able to accomplish they've accomplished quite a bit. So how do we just in general, there's that one side of it and then there's the other side where right we have to be make like we have to make sure that we're scientifically making sure that we're not doing that's not wrong. How do we work with that?
3: So, you know, we can talk about this from the angle of CRISPR or cellular therapy or any new therapy. Oncolytic viruses are another example where we're able to use viruses that try to infect cancer cells and kill cancer cells. All of these represent new technology. And I think for all of us as drug developers, we need to balance our enthusiasm for developing next generation therapies with Ethics, right? There are medical ethics that are really, really important to the protection of patients. And like most physicians or many physicians in the world, you know, I I took the Hippocratic Oath. I believe that it is my job to protect patient safety. I am a physician scientist. And so I dedicated my career to trying to increase the understanding of science and bring forward new therapeutics. But I will never forget that in this field, I am a physician, I am a doctor, my job is to help improve the lives of patients. I can't do that if we bring forward therapies that harm patients. So I think the way to do this is understand the biology you're trying to manipulate, make sure you've done the things that you can do in non-human studies to ensure that there isn't some terrible effect of your therapeutic that you didn't understand, but you easily could have understood. And then be really thoughtful about the human experiments that you conduct. I think those phase one studies are really important and you need to be thoughtful about the patient population you're gonna go in, right? So I think I mentioned cancer is a good opportunity because often you do those phase one studies in patients whom if you don't do anything, they're going to die and they're going to die soon. And so they need something. And so they're a good place to start, right? Because if you come in with a therapy, you don't have to worry about, am I going to cause leukemia in you 20 years down the road as your first step? Because you're thinking about, can I help you live longer than, you know, 12 weeks? So I think that, thinking about where you start with a study is important. And I think designing that clinical trial in the right way, in a thoughtful way, is really important. We can't de-risk new therapies 100%, because there's a lot that you don't understand until you go into humans, but you can design those studies really well. And one of the things I'm a big fan of, and I build into many, if not most of my phase one studies, is when you don't understand a new therapeutic, that you don't expose a lot of patients initially, you start and you look in a single patient at a single dose level, right? And you generally try to start low. And you essentially say, look, we won't understand everything until we actually enter a human clinical trial. But I'm gonna treat one patient and just make sure that, The therapy we're developing is well tolerated and once i can do that then i'll treat the next patient or the next couple of patients then i can move up to the next dose level but what i don't want to do is expose a bunch of patients with at a new dose level of a drug that i've never used before right so i'm a believer when i when we design those phase ones either with single patient cohorts at low doses or in the traditional three-plus-three-dose d- design for staggering the first patient. Mm-hmm. So when you're going to dose three patients, you don't dose three at a time. You dose your first patient, make sure that patient is doing well, and then dose your next two patients. And I think those things, type, those types of approaches to clinical trial design do help us de-risk uh, get, or mitigate some of the risk of the unknown right? It keeps us from being afraid of testing new approaches, mm-hmm. but it says we're going to be cautious enough about the kinds of things that we don't fully understand.
2: That makes sense. Uh, Dr. Chen, we've covered really good good ground. Uh, maybe just to wrap up, I think some of our listeners may have loved ones or friends who are, who are uh, suffering from cancer, given where we are today in the field and given the pipeline of, of therapies we have coming down, uh, what do you think people should know? Maybe leave them with a message, how they should think about the space and, uh, and reasons for, for optimism in the future.
3: Yeah. So I'll finish by saying that I do think we're at a really special time in the history of science and therapeutics. We are in you know, what I think has been said before, the age of innovation, where we have the intersection of multiple technologies, and we're starting to make great strides in the advancement of therapeutics. When I was in training as an oncologist at Stanford, I would often see terminal cancer patients, and I didn't have much hope for their futures. I sided on the side of protecting what remaining time they had left. Twenty, Almost 20 years later, I would say that my view on the world for cancer patients, and it goes beyond cancer as well, has changed dramatically. I think that we sit on the cusp of multiple breakthroughs in therapeutics. And I have a level of hope for the future of what would otherwise be terminal cancer patients that I've never experienced before in my lifetime. That has changed my perspective to the point where when I see patients with potentially terminal cancer, my perspective and my message to them is fight this disease where you can because you don't know where the next breakthrough is around the corner. And we're starting to see breakthroughs around many, many corners. So if you can just make it another six months or another two years, you may see the emergence of therapies that we don't have available today that could be really transformative for your life.
2: Dr. Chen, thank you so much. It's been wonderful having you on the podcast.
3: Well, it's my pleasure to have been here. Thank you so much for having spent the time to talk this morning.